Well, it'd be great if you could have your Bibles open at Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound. By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Question. How many times has it crossed your mind in the course of this past week that you are somebody who has died to sin? Have you even had the thought this week that you have died to sin? Tonight we're going to be thinking about one of the most important doctrines in all of the New Testament, and yet one of the most neglected. The doctrine of union with Christ, but with particular focus to the fact that we have died to sin. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as many of you will know, um, preached a very famous series through the book of Romans. But before he preached it, there was one occasion he was preaching on a Sunday morning, and a, a young man came up to him after the service and said to him, when are you going to begin your series in the book of Romans. And Lloyd-Jones answered, when I can understand Romans chapter 6. Now that's fascinating because he didn't say, when I can understand Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, which I said last week was probably the hardest passage in Romans. Not when he could understand Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25, nor when he could understand Romans chapters 9 through chapter 11, but when I can understand Romans chapter 6. This is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, and it's so important with regards to how we live the Christian life. We are every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year to understand we are united with Christ. And because we're united with Christ, we have died to sin. We are no longer under sin's dominion. And Paul's going to really unpack that here in these opening couple of verses. Now, you know that we we speak about sanctification. We've been looking in chapter 5 at the doctrine, and in chapter 4, the the glorious doctrine of justification. Now, as we come into this chapter 6, we're going to consider the doctrine of sanctification. There used to be the most Christians, and you say, give me a definition of of sanctification. Often, the, 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 the... the aspect of sanctification they most think about is the, the progressive reality of sanctification. That is, we are in this process as believers where we are gradually transformed, heart, mind, will, conduct more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Professor John Murray used to say, it is a fact to frequently overlook that in the New Testament, the most characteristic terms that refer to sanctification are used not of a process, but of a once-for-all definitive act. 
Tonight, we're not thinking about progressive sanctification. We're thinking about definitive sanctification. This once and for all definitive act. Namely, we're going to think about the first part of our heading, death to sin, that we have died to sin. And then next Sunday night, we'll come back and we'll think about what it means to be alive to God. Now, what leads Paul to speak about this reality, we have died to sin, is that as he finished chapter 5, this incredibly important section, he says, as sin increased, grace has abounded all the more. And that statement about God's grace instantly in Paul's mind, he knows that it raises an objection in many of his hearers' minds. And the, the objections is this, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So, so if sin increases and, grace, and God's grace abounds all the more, shall we go on sinning and show how glorious and how gracious God is? Now, let's be honest, that question can arise from two different sources. It can, on the one hand, emerge from people who see God's grace and total forgiveness of our sins as a license for sinful behavior really based on the notion, if God loves me unconditionally, then regardless of my behavior, I'm free to live as I please. And if you read Jude, verse 4, you'll see that is a perversion of the grace of God. Whereas on the other hand, this, uh, this whole notion can arise from concerned Christians who are fearful that a strong emphasis on God's grace will lead people to live irresponsible lives. In fact, wherever the gospel is preached, it seems that this is a concern that is raised from many Christians. Jesus faced this accusation. The apostle Paul faced this accusation. The reformers faced this accusation. And in these verses that follow, Paul's going to deal with this objection. But his answer to this objection is bound up with this reality of union with Christ. It's interesting that he doesn't say, let's now talk about the law. The reason why we, we, we shouldn't go on sinning is because of the law of God. He goes straight away to this glorious reality of the fact that we, you and I, who trust in Christ, are united to him. So look at what he says. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, I want you to listen very carefully what Paul, what Paul didn't say. He didn't say to them, you misunderstood what I meant. I did not intend to say that God's grace was so unqualified. He didn't say that. When the grace of God is preached and made known, we don't need to qualify it. Nor did he say... How could you possibly think such a thing or act in that way? No, Paul's response is, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It is impossible, says Paul. By the nature of the case for such a thing to happen. 
It is impossible to continue a life in sin. Do you know why? We die to sin. Now, the first thing we should know about Paul's statement, we die to sin, is that death has occurred in the past. It's not something here that we should do. It's something that has already been done. Every person in this world who is a true believer has, past tense, died to sin. And let me just explain what that means. We are not to die more and more unto sin. And you might say, hold on a minute, Andrew, what, what, what does Romans chapter 8 verse 13 say? Does it not talk about putting sin to death? Well, that is a very different action from the one that Paul is speaking about here. The other thing you should know about this statement, we have died to sin, that we should observe is, this has occurred and there are believers, even maybe some among you tonight, who are not aware of this. That you have died to sin. And our awareness of this fact doesn't make it any less or more true. What it does do is determines how we would respond and apply this fact to our lives. And so as we, as we go through the night, what I really just want to answer is this question, how have we died to sin? Paul says the answer is bound up with understanding this glorious reality that is union with Christ. If I die and someone writes an obituary of me, I want them to say somewhere in my obituary that I lived with the understanding that I was united to Christ. It is the most important thing about any believer that I was in Christ. I don't care. I'm not concerned if it says I was a Christian because that term was only ever really used as a term of derogatory in the New Testament. But if you read the New Testament, nearly 200 times Paul and other writers describe themselves as being in Christ, in him, with the Lord. It is how they viewed themselves. It is key to understanding one's self. Just in this chapter, if you look down at verse 3, he speaks about the fact that we were baptized into his death. Look at verse 4. We were buried with him. Look at verse 5. We have been united with him in his death. Look at verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. Look at verse 8. We died with Christ. Look at verse 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Sorry, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. Paul wants us to know that we died to sin because Christ died to sin. Now, I know that the first time you hear this, you, you might, it might not just drop. So if you've got a Bible there, just turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14.
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, page 966. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, I could have said, turn back to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, because that's the point at stress. There are two men, Adam and the last Adam, Christ. There were two acts, Adam's disobedience, and in Adam's act of disobedience, we all sinned. And in Christ's act of obedience, his act of righteousness, all who believe in him lived with him, died with him, were raised with him, and therefore reign with him. Um, we talk at Easter time, we're going to remember the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not the full story. At Easter time, we remember our death, our burial, our resurrection. You see, we, we've got to understand that our lives, because of this amazing reality called union with Christ, are bound up with Christ. That's why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. We were co-crucified. We died with Christ at Calvary. We were buried with Christ on Holy Saturday. We were raised with Christ on Easter Sunday. Our lives are bound up with Christ. Now, the theology that we touched on last week that's so key is this theology called federal theology, the federal headship of Adam and the federal headship of Christ. What we said last week is Adam is the father of all humanity. Everyone who's ever been born, with the exception of Jesus Christ, Adam is their father. And in Adam's act of disobedience, all sinned in him. All of us. He acted on our behalf and we sinned in him. The result of his sin was death and condemnation for all. But the glorious reality of the federal headship of the second Adam, Christ, is through his act of righteousness, he brought justification and life to all who would trust in him to the new humanity. We've got to understand that all of our responsibilities before God rested upon him. And all of the merits that he accrued in his perfect life and his obedient death were accrued for us. So just as Adam, sin was truly our sin if we'd committed it. So Christ's perfect obedience to God's law his death to pay the penalty of a broken law are just as much our obedience and death as if we'd perfectly obeyed God's law and died with Christ. I've said it before, but my favorite theologian is George Smeaton, so this is what he says. We have but one public representative, one corporate act performed by the Son of God in which we share as truly as if we had accomplished that atonement ourselves. Now, just let that sink in. All that Christ did, we did with him. 
This impacts our standing before God in huge ways. As well as our eternal destiny, it's not based on our performance, but on his performance. He acted as our head, as our legal representative. Now, now, now let me try and apply this right to, to us. When we sin, our, our consciences condemn us. They condemn us for our sins and for our failures. Our failures to live out the Christian life as God has called us. But you know what we need to do when we realize that we fall short is recognize that we died with Christ. We need to recognize that we perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. This morning we were uh, looking at John chapter 8, and we're looking at verses 31 through 59, but in verse 29, Jesus says, I always do what pleases my Father. You could easily add, when Jesus pleased the Father, we please the Father. Because our lives, because of union with Christ, are so bound up with his. And so, brothers and sisters, when you understand this once and for all definitive sanctification, your entire confidence is not resting on you. Your performance is entirely resting on Christ. His sinless life. His obedient death. Now, all I've just said there might feel like a digression. How, how have we died to sin? What does that mean? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back to chapter 5 and verse 21. Look at it. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to notice that when Paul speaks of sin here, he personifies it. Um, he views it as, as reigning over a kingdom. Now, why did sin reign? The answer is because of our guilt in Adam. The consequence of his sin is that Sin, the penal consequence of our guilt, was to be delivered over unto sin as a legal reign. And so all were brought under the dominion of sin. Now, one of the places where we see this really clearly is, is in David's psalm, Psalm 51. He speaks of the reign and dominion of sin over his life. He says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The only reason David would say that he was sinful at birth before he'd actually committed any sin was because he realized he was born under Adam's guilt. And so he experienced in his life the dominion of sin. So what then does it mean to die to sin? What then does it mean to no longer be under the dominion of sin? This is where understanding Christ's death is so important. When Christ died, he took the penalty that sin deserved. Christ died, taking the punishment and the penalty we deserve as sinners. He, knew, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And because he took this penalty of sin, he delivered us 
from sin's dominion. From sin's reign. In, in, in God's plan of salvation, in God's economy of salvation, his delivering us from the penalty of sin immediately, once and for all, delivers us from the dominion of sin. Now, I know when people hear that, they instantly think, how can we be delivered from the dominion of sin if we still, in this life, sin? Well, the one thing we've not yet been delivered from is the presence of sin. We still have indwelling sin. We still live in a fallen world of sin. But what you and I have got to understand is if Christ has paid the penalty for sin, therefore the legal reign of sin is no longer over us. He died to it, verse 10, and so we died with Christ. And this is all because of union with Christ. Now, I fully appreciate that this is, these are some of the most difficult truths just to, to let sink in in an evening. And my explanation of it will not be great. But when Paul wrote, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? His, Paul, his point is this. If we have died with Christ to sin, we cannot continue in it. Not the activity of committing sins, but to continue to live under the dominion, the reign of sin. Every single person who's a Christian is no longer living under the dominion of sin in the true sense. We're no longer under the reign or the ruling power of sin. There's a new power ruling and reigning over us, and it's the reign of grace. We've been brought from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So um, one commentator illustrates it like this. Imagine a wicked military force had complete control of a country and a good army invaded. The good army could throw the wicked force out of power, give the capital, the seat of government, and communicate back, and, and, and back to the people. But the out-of-power soldiers could still live in the bush. This guerrilla force could create havoc for the new rightful government. It could often impose its own will and part of the country, even though it could never get back into power. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within us. But what it does mean is that it can no longer dictate to us. You have died to sin. How can you go on living in it? Now, we're going to come to this point next week. And so this is just like a preview for next week. But the real reason why we, we can't go on living in sin is because Christ has paid its penalty and Christ has been raised to newness of life, and we've been raised with him. A long time ago, uh, Robert Cunningham, my friend from Kentucky, preached here, and his sermon was on Romans 6, and I think it was 1 Corinthians 15. And in the sermon, he, he made the use an illustration where he said, in America, so if you're American, you barbaric Americans, um, you put people to death still. They get the death penalty. Now, some people here might want to bring back the death penalty. But let's just go with that illustration. If you're someone 
who is deserving of the death penalty because of a sin you have committed, because of a wrongdoing you've done, the judge sentences you to death, and you die on the electric chair, that means you pay for it in full. That's the punishment that was issued by the judge. That's the punishment penalty you're deserving. Pay for it in full. What happens if that person who's died on the electric chair comes back to life? Are they under the penalty and the punishment of the government? No. Because they've paid the penalty in full. In fact, now, incredibly, they're a new creation. They're a new person. They're alive. They've come back from the dead. And they're no longer under the reign, the dominion of the old penalty and punishment. And brothers and sisters, that's you and me. We died with Christ. The penalty has been paid for. The legal dominion of sin over us is no more because we've been raised with him to newness of life. We are new creations. And, and when this reality sinks in that you and I have died with Christ. This is this once and for all definitive act. Truly, it, it changes the way we think about our Christian lives and our pursuit of holiness. You and I, when sin greets us day in, day out, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say no, and we will succumb. Sin is a battle within inside of us, the flesh, the devil, everything's warring. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are alive in the newness of life with Christ. Just one illustration to, to close this off, how we die to sin. Uh, I was just listening to a sermon on Sinclair Ferguson's because I thought this is a really difficult passage to preach on. And he ended with this rather amusing story. Uh, he, was the, he was the minister in, in the States in um, First Presbyterian Church, Columbia. And on the Friday evening, before he preached a sermon in Romans chapter 6, he'd gone out for dinner with his wife, Dorothy. And when it got to the end of the meal, um, he called the waiter over and he says, can I pay the bill? And the waiter said to him, do you want dessert? He said, no. And so, and so just, just that moment, um, Singler started fumbling around in his pocket to find his, his card to pay. And the waiter came back and he had this huge dessert and he put it down the table and he put two spoons down the pay table as well. And he said, your bill has been paid for. Here's your dessert. And Singler said in his sermon to his congregation, Whoever did it, thank you. And then he went on to say it was the most surreal experience. He couldn't believe it. He just had this really nice meal with his wife. And then he had to get up out of the restaurant and he didn't pay for it. And there was a little part of him for a little while. He was thinking, is this guy going to run after me? Am I going to be forced to pay this? Is there going to be a police officer waiting for me if I walk out of here? He just couldn't really, the, the reality that someone else had paid for a Scotsman's meal was just too much for him to take in. Now, he said himself it was a silly little illustration. But in one sense, it makes the point. Jesus Christ has settled our debt. Not only has the bill been settled, but the dominion of that kingdom over us is broken. It's got no hold over us now. We are now free. And we are free to live 
for God's glory. Yes, we're going to battle with the presence of sin. But brothers and sisters, because we are united to Christ, because we're bound to Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, we are free to live for God's glory. And when this sinks in, truly, it is the most life-transforming truth in our battle with sin. We died with him. We were buried with him. Brothers and sisters, we've been raised with him, raised into the newness of life. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we confess that this is one of the most important truths and yet we ourselves have taken little heed to it. Even though it feels like in every page of the New Testament we read about being in Christ, with Christ, baptized into his death, sharing in his burial and his resurrection, we confess that sometimes we just seem so blind to it, that our lives are so bound up with our federal head. Oh God, we thank you for the amazing realities that Paul unpacks here in Romans chapter 6, and we pray that in the weeks that lie ahead, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this chapter so that we might see who we are our true identity, and as a result of it, we would be better equipped to live that life that you desire for us. God, we thank you that in Christ we have everything we need for life and for godliness. Your divine power has granted it to us through our knowledge of him, and so our prayer even this evening is having known that we have died with Christ, we are died with Christ, dead to sin, we pray, O oh God, that we would not continue unimaginable living in the under the dominion of sin. Oh, we praise you for Jesus. We pray as we enter this new week, we would enter it with the blessed and wonderful assurance that you have defeated sin's uh, you've, Christ has taken sin's penalty. And he's freed us from sin's reign. It's in his name we pray this. Amen.